This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Williams, senior editor of MGMA and host of the MGMA Podcast Network. Today, we're joined by Mike McMahon. He's vice president and client management physician of Client Management Physician Services at Conifer. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you are currently vice president of Client Management Physician Services at Conifer. First off, before we go deeper into that and other topics, um, tell us a little bit about Conifer, what you guys do. Okay, so Conifer Health um, offers end-to-end revenue cycle solutions for um, health systems, hospitals, medical groups. Um, We also have a a value-based care uh, division uh, that offers uh, population health management services. Uh, And so, uh, again, whether you're in a hospital-specific setting, a physician-based operation, uh, or value-based care, uh, but particularly, you know, going back to the revenue cycle solutions for hospitals or physicians, we can offer, again, end-to-end solutions. So starting with, you know, patient access, eligibility and enrollment, things of that nature, Um, uh, you know, charge entry, coding, claim submission, claim edits, third-party follow-up, denial management, um, you know, payment posting, customer service, issuing statements, uh, different solutions for patients to uh, to make uh, um, payments on their, their balances, things of that nature. So basically, truly, again, A to Z in terms of the revenue cycle operations, but we can we can also offer point solutions, um, particularly during COVID when um, uh, clients were struggling more with just maybe finding certified coders to help with their coding. They might come to us and say, Conifer, can you just help us with coding in our emergency department, right? Or our radiology department, right? And so, and we've done a lot of that in recent years too, again, largely driven by some of the challenges created by COVID. Um, so we'll, we'll do point solutions, right? We'll do just one of those for you if that's what you want. If you just want assistance with eligibility and enrollment or authorizations only, we can do that for you as well, right? So um, obviously we we like to offer the full suite of services and then we have eyes and hands on everything. And so we can be most, you know, uh, efficient uh, and, and uh, you know, perform at our highest level when that's the case. But it doesn't mean, again, we can't work on just, you know, a single solution and provide that to our clients as well. Yeah. So what do you see as your primary role there? What are you focused on? Right. So I am the uh, VP of client management, as you said. And so my team is the interface team between our client organizations and our organization. So um, we're out in the field working with clients to make sure that we're delivering on the promise, if you will, in terms of our key performance metrics, specifically as they relate you know, to uh, service level agreements that are within our uh, agreements with our clients to make sure, again, that we're you know, delivering on the promise, so to speak. Uh, but then also at the same time, working closely with the operators back at, you know, back at the house, if you will, um, uh, to make sure that, you know, what they're focused on is in alignment with what our clients are, you know, wanting in terms of financial outcomes, right? But also getting valuable information from our operations teams 
so that we can share that information with our clients, um, particularly if they have more responsibility for the front end of the revenue cycle, which is often the case with a lot of our clients. And so client delivery delivers, right? So that operators can operate basically is what I like to say, right? But uh, again, we're really out there being an advocate for our clients, you know, again, demonstrating on a regular basis, here's where you're at from a performance standpoint, just the basics, you know, um, blocking and tackling, here's your charges, payments, your payer mix, your gross collection rate, things of that nature. We focus a lot on denials and denial management, right? And so if there's a spike in a certain type of denial, the you know the client delivery team is kind of your first pass analyst. And so you should start digging into some additional reports that help you to identify where the source of that issue may be. You're going to also want to circle back to the operations team, like I just mentioned, and get their feedback if they're saying the same thing as it relates to maybe that new denial trend, right? So again, client delivery is kind of the one team that is talking to everybody, like a lot of touch points at the client and then a lot of touch points internally at Conifer to make sure, again, we're all kind of, you know, humming as one, you know, fine-tuned machine. Yeah. Now, in a minute, we're going to focus on a very specific aspect of that denial prevention. It's a very important uh, mm-hmm. topic, one that's challenging to many practices there. Before we go there, wanted to have you just share with us, we know where you are now, you just shared that with us, but tell us a little bit about your healthcare journey. How'd you get to where you are today? Okay. I'll try not to date myself too much, but I started, <laughs> uh, I started actually as a nurse in healthcare. Uh, so over 30 years ago, I've been in healthcare over 30 years. Uh, at the University of Chicago Hospitals, um, learned a lot as a nurse. Um, I was one of those nurses who never shied away from uh, like administrative initiatives where they wanted to, hey, we're going to improve, you know, um, you know, patient satisfaction, or we're going to do a supply chain initiatives. Most nurses ran the other direction, right? So I usually stepped forward. Uh, over time, I kind of got recruited into administrative roles, right, and then kind of burnished my credentials to kind of go along with that from a business administration standpoint. And so I moved into administrative roles where I largely managed um, physician-based operations, right? So a lot of what our clients are doing today, right? So I was very much focused, obviously, on, you know, clinical operations and delivering the highest level of care that we could for our patients, making sure, you know, the clinical or diagnostic and treatment area that I was responsible for was working very well, starting from when patients start lining up at the door, right? But always, you know, with responsibility for the revenue cycle all the while as well, but more so towards the front end, like a lot of our clients are today. So, Never lost sight of the importance of, um, you know, revenue cycle um, operations and, and then always optimizing and keeping a close watch on revenue cycle because things change so much and denials do pop up and surprise you sometimes. So then I came into this role about 10 years ago and, you know, those prior roles really kind of helped me to, you know, fill my toolbox with all the tools you would need to kind of do what I'm doing now, talking to our clients, helping them understand what, you know, the, the, the challenges uh, of the revenue cycle and dealing with the payers, which is the kind of the heaviest lifting we do, obviously, for our clients is denial management and, you know, advocating for them, on, you know, uh, as we go to bat, if you will, or battle with the payers. Um, but again, it, it helps that I lived all of that, both from a clinician standpoint and then right. the administrator standpoint. So, you know, now that my job is to really be talking to the clients all the time, I can really, you know, speak very uh, directly uh, to, to what it is, um, you know, they experience because I lived through it for so long myself, right? So it, it comes in pretty handy. Yeah, I... I'm always fascinated and always want to ask that question to our guest on the podcast, no matter where they are now, uh, how they got there. And it, it, I'm never disappointed because there's just so many different paths to take you to where you are at this point. And you've got that both that clinician side and that administrative side. So I'm sure that has helped you along the way. Yeah, yeah, it certainly has. I have four grown sons. I've, 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 I've had that. Everybody has their own path conversation <laughs> quite a few times. 
<laughs> oh, that is great. That is great. Um, well, let's get to it then. We we I'd mentioned earlier we're going to talk about um, denial prevention. So based on some offline conversations, some emails going back and forth uh, that we'd shared, this is one of the topics you've been focused on lately. From a general standpoint, what is it about denial prevention that caught your attention or, or led you to be where, hey, this is one of the things in our practice, you know, practices that I'm going to be focusing on? Yeah, we absolutely focus very heavily on denial prevention, Daniel. I mean, it's absolutely key. One of the primary goals that we always repeat constantly to our clients, to our coworkers, uh, to anybody who will listen really, is that maximizing your initial clean claim rate or, you know, in turn to, you know, minimizing your initial denial rate is key uh, for no other reason than it's expensive to work a denial, right? It adds minimum 30, 60 days to the revenue cycle in terms of getting your reimbursement. Um, so you may not have reimbursement denied, but you're certainly going to have reimbursement delayed. And then even when you do realize that reimbursement, you've now got a fair percentage of that reimbursement going to pay for the work that it took to work the denial, right? And get it, you know, um, peeled and paid. And Conifer is very good at that, but we would rather you instead, you know, and, and for yourself, for ourselves, even the payers, um, have a clean claim rate uh, or clean claim go out the very first time, right? So we we really strive to have clients that have, you know, 95, 96, 97% or higher clean claim rate. Because again, um, that that's what's best for, for everybody involved, including the patient as well, obviously. So, but, you know, the reality is that, you know, denials are, um, you know, a, a reality in what we do, but again, you, you want to do everything you can to help to minimize those things. And so a lot of that stuff does happen on the front end. So we're very regularly working with our clients on um, relying on the tools that we have available to either us and our billing platform or the billing platform of the clients that we often use to say, let's take advantage of the tools in your EHR and your system to stop that claim before it goes out incorrectly, right? Like a basic example is some payers for a bilateral procedure want modifier RT and LT. Some of them want modifier 50. So if you've built your system to go out only one way, but you're, you know, losing out, if you will, with certain payers who want it the other way, well, then let's stop those and make sure that they're evaluated so you can fix it before it goes out the door. And again, you'll have a clean claim go out rather than than not. And so, and, you know, sometimes that's a challenge for clients, you know, because that puts a little bit more of the work if they own the front end, then, you know, the cleanup of that happens there. But it's always just makes much more sense for everybody involved than to try and just wait for a denial that, you know, is inevitable and then work it that way. Right. So, so identifying that's just one example. Right. So but identifying those as much as possible to, again, maximize your initial clean claim rate and avoid those denials altogether. That is always, you know, a penultimate goal of what we try to achieve with our clients. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, what are the causes then? What's happening in practices that is causing gaps in denial prevention? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many things uh, to, uh, like where to start there, but it's <laughs> it's really just focusing on, you know, the, the details of all the processes that you do have on the front end. So uh, and again, a lot of denials will happen related to front end processes. And so it's not atypical to see like eligibility um, and so that starts from the moment of patient access or um, coding and or uh, authorization. So all these things that happen more toward the front end, closer to the provider and the patient care, um, because people, again, are focused a lot on more of the let's just get the patient in and registered and get the care delivered. And so but along the way, you know, you have to have a really good process for 
um, you know, patient access and eligibility and making sure the people that are responsible for that don't have distractions. Uh, you, there's a lot of good eligibility, uh, eligibility tools out there, but if your staff aren't well-trained and or know what to do with the information that comes back when you run an eligibility check, pardon me, then, um, you know, you're going you're gonna to potentially have some issues. You know, I mean, it's as simple sometimes as making sure you pick the right Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. Yeah, you ran Mike McMahon through. Looks like he has Blue Cross Blue Shield. Yeah, he does, but you picked the wrong plan, right? So, and now you're going to get a denial, you know, for coverage reasons, right? It's just kind of like one example. Um, and so having, you know, really kind of tight front-end processes that are highly focused on data integrity, right? Starting again with this, what sounds like the simple stuff, right? Of getting my name, date of birth, and my Blue Cross Blue Shield information correct. But then, you know, on down through the, you know, the continuum of care, now the provider needs to be as thoughtful about their documentation and, you know, the data integrity associated with that. Uh, if you are going to, um, you know, have a, a, a need for an authorization, right? Do you understand what this payer requires, right? And because that's going to require a certain level of data. Uh, some payers' tools are better than others, right? So, um, but all along the way, it's having defined processes, people understanding their roles, and, you know, always focusing on a very high level of um, data integrity. Well, let's talk about solutions then. What are some steps that practices can take to begin to turn these trends around? Sure, sure. So going back to, you know, where we started with like, again, the the eligibility. So um, as much as you can kind of separate some of those functions. So again, you don't have distractions. Um, eligibility, you want to make sure you're checking it like four days in advance of a visit. So then when the patient's right across from the, the person checking in for their visit when they're there, you don't have a very limited opportunity at that point then to try and confirm the the, the patient's uh, insurance information. So make sure, again, that you're capturing it correctly at the point of scheduling and registration, that you're using the eligibility tools in advance of the patient arriving for the visit, and everybody, again, understanding that, you know, those processes. So that's all done very well, and there's really no kind of question. And if you do it really well, and depending, again, on the uh, capabilities of the tools that you're using, you should be able to tell Mike McMahon that he's got a $20 copay, right? And then that makes that easier to collect at the front desk, which ultimately, you know, um, staff sometimes have a hard time asking for copays, right? But if you know it's accurate and the patient knows it is as well, everybody's generally happier when, you know, when that works well and, and, and people are informed. And again, but you have to really kind of use the tools, right? And again, make sure of that. Um, but then even when, you know, um, the patient does arrive, if you don't have a scanned image of their um, insurance card available, make sure you capture that at that point as well, that you may even capture that there's an inaccuracy there. So again, focusing on all of those, you know, details, uh, with the eligibility uh, information up front is really, really key. So, uh, and the same thing, you know, the same at least principles kind of apply even as you move into, again, like for authorizations, like I was just saying, it requires a lot of information, The you know, all, all the patient information that I already mentioned, but now you'll need their diagnosis code, the um, CPT codes that are tied to the procedure that you're looking to get authorized, right? Sometimes you may need to submit medical records, you know, the full medical record from the physician. Um, and again, sometimes that's as easy as scanning and uploading something. Sometimes it's not as easy. Some payers don't want it right away. So you guys need to be aware of that. Uh, but then also making sure that the provider is involved in that process as well. And they're giving you really good information, right? Um, and, 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 and even when they are, and you get a procedure authorized, making sure then that during the delivery of care, when the, um, when the provider changes the procedure that's been approved, which happens 
pretty <laughs> frequently, frankly. Um, but if a you know a, you know a colonoscopy goes from a, a diagnostic to a preventative type care, that's a different CPT code. And maybe that was approved, you know, during the authorization process. Maybe it was not. But it's incumbent upon the provider to let the authorization team know that so that they can get it updated and, you know, the claim can go out. And again, it won't get rejected for a missing or an invalid authorization. So, again, all of that is understanding the process, understanding people's roles. And right again, right back to the kind of the data integrity, because it's only as good as, you know, the, the quality of the data that you're putting in. Again, whether it's the diagnosis code, CPT code or the medical records like I was talking about. Um, and then for coding denials as well, one of the other ones I mentioned in terms of, you know, front end. Uh, operations. Again, a lot of the same uh, types of principles apply, but it's really more focused on the provider's documentation, uh, the coder's interpretation of that documentation, uh, and making sure there's kind of a, a really good dialogue. I mean, even like a required dialogue between like the coding team and the providers so that, you know, when a coder's looking at a record, they feel comfortable going back to a provider and saying, hey, it looks like you did a review of systems of six different systems. I only see four, but your note seems to indicate that that might change the level of complexity and the difficulty of the medical decision-making, which goes into what type of a CPT code do I assign, which will ultimately determine your reimbursement, right? So all of that needs to be, you know, again, things where people understand their roles, but where you're really kind of maximizing and focusing again, yet again, on just, you know, the accuracy of the data that you're you're working with, whether it, again, it's the, the physician, you know, documentation, the coder interpreting it and, you know, assigning accurate codes. Um, and then, you know, the uh, most accurate reimbursement, you know, being returned for those services rendered. Okay. Once you have those steps uh, in place, those best practices, what are some KPIs you'd recommend uh, practice leaders study and follow? Yeah, for sure. Uh, excellent question, because uh, that's where you have to start. Um, you can't make any good decisions without data, right? And so you need to be yeah, monitoring the dashboard. Right. If you um, so so initial denial rate, I, I already mentioned that's uh, that's huge. Or, you know, again, uh, initial clean claim rate is the, you know, the flip side of that. But then also final denial rate as well. Um if you're doing well with um, your overall revenue cycle operation, your final denial should never really be over like 2%, right? We strive to have our clients between like 1% and 2%, and most of them hang around 1.4%, 1.5%. That's pretty good. Uh, you can get under 1% final denial rate. That's going to depend on the specialty a little bit. Primary care tends to be a little easier and cleaner. Um, but if your initial denial rate is above 7 or 8%, if your final denial rate is above 2 or 3%, that's your one of your early indicators that you've got some opportunities probably, right? right. So um, beyond that, it's your days in AR. So how long does it take you on average to get paid for a clean claim? You want to be in the 30 to 35 day range. Again, um, you can sometimes be below that. You know, we're fortunate at Conifer. We actually have some pretty large, complex, multi-specialty academic clients where we are below 30 days in AR. So we're averaging less than a month, you know, on average, you know, all claims, you know, combined, uh, getting those things paid uh, timely and cleanly. Uh, another good aging metric um, beyond days in AR is the AR greater than 90 days. So that's how much accounts receivable is older than 90 days and hasn't gotten any payment or any type of resolution whatsoever. Um, we like to say 90-90, you know, so 90% of your uh, AR is under 90 days. You know, we don't always quite get there, but that should always kind of be the goal, right? And then also AR greater than 365. So anything that's over a year, you shouldn't be hanging on to more than 2 to 3%, 3.5% at most of your AR that's aged over a year. If you have AR that's, you know, aged over a year and it's 10% of your total AR, you've probably got a lot of, you know, no no value AR hanging out there that you probably need to clean up and, and adjust and, and take a look at how it got there to begin with as well, right? To try and avoid that because that that number should never climb into the double digits. So that's a real big one. 
Um, we also look at nine month denial resolution rate. That's a good one. That kind of gives a good indicator of what you know our third party follow up denial management team is doing. We try to make sure that any and all denials, 85 to 90 percent or more, are fully resolved at the nine month mark. So whether that's paid or adjusted off, whatever the case may be, it's not hanging out there still being worked. Right. And so um, we always said 85 percent is kind of like our internal goal. I can tell you that all of our clients are well above 85 percent. So that's another really good one. And then specific to coding, you want a good turnaround time. So from the time the provider completes their documentation, they close the encounter, it lands in a work queue for a coder to work. That should usually be two to three days, no more, right? And so you don't want that to be held up any longer than it needs to be. And if everything's there that's needed to get it coded, you know, again, accurately, um, and then that should go out the door on average in two to three days. And then coding accuracy as well. So we here at Conifer have a pretty strict um uh, quality program where all of our coders need to be at 95.5% accuracy or greater. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and not everybody hits it every single month, but for the most part they do. And if we ever see more than one month where you're off the mark, well, that coder is going to get some education and training and we'll continue with that if we need to. But for coding, the real big ones are turnaround times and uh, coding quality. Okay. You had mentioned clients that you have, uh, the percentages that they reach uh, once they've uh, you know, come on board with y'all. Um, as a final question, then, do you have a success story you could share with us about a practice that's utilized some of these tools and and seen mm-hmm. things change for the better for them? For sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, actually, I have a handful, but one that immediately kind of comes to mind. Uh, not too long ago, we um, we have a safety net hospital down in the southeast of the United States, and they had uh, starting with their emergency room, but it actually wound up being all of their service lines. They had a just a lot of variability in terms of the their coding quality, right? And a lot of it tied to um, provider or you know a clinician documentation, right? And so some providers don't always want to hear that, but um, but but we we knew just from you know doing a little bit of you know uh, hunting and pecking and analysis that there was certainly opportunity there, if for no other reason than you know all of the providers in the emergency room had very different uh, outcomes in terms of what they were documenting, what they were coding, right? And so. Um, so we started there, but we expanded it then uh, through the rest of the um, the other specialties and service lines. But we started with, you know, a full-blown um, clinical documentation improvement program, which is led by a physician here at Conifer and, and a host of other auditors and what have you, and took 10, 20 charts from every single provider, did a very full, thorough audit of, of all of their charts, right? Sure enough, come to find out, there were oftentimes things that were being done and weren't documented, like I alluded to earlier, right? Um, and, and or... Uh, things that were being misunderstood to be potentially more complex than what they really were, right? So there was opportunities for, you know, adjusting codes up, adjusting codes down, but mostly there was opportunity for um, improving the clinician's documentation, right? So as an outcome of all those audits, we had individual one-on-one physician education that was extremely well-received. We routinely got feedback from the physician saying, I never knew I was doing this, you know, wrong for the last five, 10 years, what have you, right? So thank you so much, you know, for this feedback. And sure enough, coding accuracy, you know, actually clinical documentation accuracy improved, coding accuracy improved, and reimbursement approved for virtually all the providers in the ED. It was over 20 physicians, right? And so then we moved from service line to service line, and we found that, you know, the, the same type of experience and outcome with all of the other service lines, particularly the more complicated they were. So like the um, surgical subspecialties that we engaged we usually found more opportunity, um, you know, for the, the for the providers again to document what they were doing, you know, because they were just, you know, 
surgeries are complicated cases, right? Just to look at one surgical record is quite a bit. It's a whole lot different than looking at just, you know, a single outpatient visit. So um, I don't know, but having said that, each one of those uh, departments uh, experienced an improvement in all those, you know, facets and areas I just pointed out. Each one of them improved their reimbursement and their financial outcomes at the end of the day. And so, the, to a person, they were all extremely uh, excited. And I have to believe that that success story is one of the reasons why that client renewed with us for another three years, not too you know, long after that really positive experience. So that's one where you know we talked about the coding denials and making sure you're focusing on accuracy, starting with the, you know, the physicians or the clinicians documentation. And uh, we found opportunity again across the board and uh, to deploy this clinical uh, documentation improvement program over the course of nearly two years and had really, really great outcomes. Uh, for everybody involved. That is awesome. Well, that is going to do it. So thank you so much, Mike, for sharing these thoughts on denial prevention with us today and for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to come back anytime you like. Um, I, I'm sure I got a lot more stories I can share with you. So. We'd love that. I want to hear stories about those four boys you're raising. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've got some good ones. You got it, yeah. <laughs> Working on grandchildren now, so all right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that is going to do it for this episode. Thanks again to Mike McMahon. He's the Vice President, Client Management Physician Services at Conifer. We're going to provide direct links to points of interest from today's conversation. Thanks for being a listener to the MGMA Podcast Network. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage when it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance. There's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com slash analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com slash analytics today.